720 WGN. Hello there. It's Amy Guth in for Anna Davalantis today. I'm with you until 3 o'clock. Glad to be here. Lots of things to talk about today. So many things. Uh, here in just a little bit, we're going to check in with A.D. Quigg from Crane's Chicago Business about a story that she wrote recently about aldermen getting an earful on the eve of affordable ta- the Affordable Housing Task Force first meeting. Uh, really interesting stuff going on there that she's been following very, very closely. Uh, of course, we're, we're going to talk with her here in just a little bit. And then a little bit later, we're going to talk with a behavioral scientist. I'm so interested in this. We're specifically going to be talking with him about that Peloton ad that went kind of um, became a lot, let's say, on social media. Jasmine, did you see this ad? I saw this ad and I actually brought it up to Anna when she was here. I was like, have you seen this? And she looked at me and she was like, there are several things wrong with there this ad. There are several things wrong with and, this ad. I, I agree. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> we need to talk about this. We need to discuss. That's right. There's a lot of layers to it of kind of where it went sideways, the viral nature of social media, different social issues that are all kind of hit at the right. same time within that ad. So, you know, when in doubt. I call a mental health professional or a behavioral scientist to come onto the air and explain. Whenever I have the question, what makes people do that? That's when, that's who I call. Right. So I found a behavioral scientist who is the, uh, the editor in chief of peoplescience.com and he's going to come talk with us about that. Then we're going to shift gears in the two o'clock hour. We're going to talk with Rob Leone. He will be in studio with us. He is one of the um, founding partners of Beyond, which is a new wellness facility happening in River North that sounds so beautiful and wonderful. It's going to be chill just to hear him talk about I it. I love this idea. I, know. I love the whole thing. It's like a membership organization and you get kind of the full thing. Your doctor is on site. You're well, because that's a thing, right? Your doctor doesn't know your, I don't know, yoga teacher doesn't know what you're right. eating, doesn't know all this stuff. So it's like, here's this full self-wellness. How are you, mind, body, and spirit? I think that's very cool. One-stop shop. One-stop. So we're going to talk with him about that. I think my blood pressure will go down just talking to him, having him here in studio. And then we're going to talk with Lisa Cruz, who is a um, highly awarded PR professional. She's nearby. She's in the region. She's in Wisconsin. And she has a lot of things to talk about, specifically around crisis communication, which is such a fascinating topic to me because I think it's one of those, a lot of people think like, oh, PRs, you know, press releases and sending tweets and it's fine. And then you find yourself in some really hot stew because, you know, maybe one of your employees has done something unfavorable, let's say, right? Or you're going through a company scandal or whatever. There's a million different things. We see it all the time, brands kind of making missteps. So we're going to talk with her about crisis communication. I love this because my one of my last classes in my journalism um, career was crisis communications and how to handle that. I never thought about that at all going into journalism. I'm like, oh, what does that mean? That class was a crash course on how to handle it. You how know to handle I mean? it, how not to get in trouble in the first right. place and then what to do if you do. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we've seen this in so many ways. An example that I always think is so interesting. There was a woman, I think she was in advertising, who several years ago tweeted something. She was on her way to South Africa, tweeted something inappropriate, turned her phone off. By the time her plane landed, she was famous. Wow. Like fire her was was like, where is she? Like All these right. hashtags were, were trending. So she gets off the plane thinking, oh, I'm tired. I've just been a flight. Suddenly she's a celebrity around the world because of this really not cool thing that she tweeted. So things like that, you know, sometimes thinking through it ahead of time. Right. And silence isn't always golden. I hate that term. Like silence is golden. Like, no, sometimes you need to say something. That's right. And sometimes you need to say something at Twitter speed, not right. PR speed, you know, not like, oh, we'll get a press release out Monday. No, you need to weigh in today right now. Yeah. So I think stuff like that is really interesting. So 
all in all, lots to do today. Lots Good of things. Show. Good show planned for you. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, we'll be, well, I'll take your calls as we have time. But like I said, lots of really smart people coming in here that I want to learn from. I hope you want to learn from them too. But if you want to give us a call, 312-981-7200. We'll take the calls as we can. We're going to take a little break and we come back. We're talking with A.D. Quigg from Crane's Chicago Business here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It's Amy Guth in for Anna Davlantis. Thanks for being with me today. With you till three o'clock. So first up in our wonderful tour of guests today, we're going to go to the Cranes newsroom where AD Quig is standing by to talk with us about some things happening right now with the citywide affordable housing task force. AD, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. All right. So talk to me. What's going on with this this task force and kind of what is the latest in the last day or two? So Mayor Lori Lightfoot ran on this platform of increasing affordable housing in the city of Chicago. She said we were close to 200,000 units short of the number of affordable units that the city needed. There was a ton of demand for affordable housing, and the existing rules that the city has in place to provide that housing is not doing enough. So she has appointed a 20-member task force to try to figure out what kinds of city codes can be altered to increase affordable housing. And as part of that, there was a, uh, a city council hearing yesterday that was a very interesting format as someone who's covered city council for a while, um, basically with affordable housing advocates walking aldermen through through what they would like to see changed uh, in the in the city code, basically saying we need to make a lot stricter uh, requirements for private developers. They need to build more affordable units in new buildings, and we need to do something different with the fees that the city collects to help subsidize rental units. Um, it, it was a fascinating format because we don't see members of the public. Um, basically laying out PowerPoint presentations of ordinances that they would like to see passed. Most of the time, it's folks lined up to speak for three minutes at a time on um, a limited subject, and they don't get a chance to do this back and forth with aldermen. So this hearing was held a day before a new task force that the mayor convened, 20 people in it, um, to study this issue met for the first time. So it was it was kind of an interesting place-setting day for something that will take several months and could really fundamentally change how the city approaches affordable housing. It is very interesting. And, and you're right. I think for as much as you, you know, for you to be surprised and for you to be uh, kind of, um, you know, puzzled by how, how a different approach to a meeting like that, I think says quite a bit. So of the things that are, you know, the change that is being asked here, one stuck out to me, and that was stricter requirements for developers. Where Where is that running amok right now? So this is called the Affordable Requirements Ordinance, the ARO. It basically says if a developer gets any city money, they have to meet some minimum requirements. They either have to build a certain number of affordable units in that building, or they need to pay a certain amount of money to a city fund that is then used to provide rental assistance to people that need it. So what a lot of developers do is choose to pay the fee instead because they say, you know, long term, it's it's a lower cost for us to just pay this fee rather than rent this out at a much lower rate than we would otherwise. We're talking about in, in a lot of senses like um, fancy buildings in gentrifying areas, essentially, is what aldermen want to go after. And they've they've tightened those rules quite a bit in in popular gentrifying areas like Logan Square and the near north side and all along that Milwaukee corridor that's just exploding with new development. Um, but developers came and testified yesterday and said, you know, construction costs are already at an all-time high. Uh, these restrictions you're putting in place are, are stifling development. And we're nervous that whatever uh, whatever new provisions you put into the city's rules, um, no one's going to want to build anything anymore. Which is which is interesting. And so, kind of, how did how did that land once that got brought into the room? 
So Alderman Harry Osterman, who is one of the three aldermen who are going to sit on this task force, said, we recognize that we need building to occur in the city of Chicago. It creates jobs. Um, we need more stock for all these people that are to welcome people into the city of Chicago. There's obviously demand for apartments like this. So we will take uh, the business community's interests to heart. It's important for us to hear. They're not being locked out of these conversations. But it's going to be a really delicate balance to try to strike uh, for the mayor's team to deliver on these thousands and thousands of units that they want. Um without stifling developers. And we have developers, um, my colleagues here have written a lot about how commercial developers in Chicago are, are a bit scared off by the uncertainty over the new assessment system that Assessor Fritz Kagi put into place. There's just a lot of uncertainty in, in real estate, and we don't know if there's going to be a nationwide recession soon that might alter um, the city's housing landscape. There's just a lot of things that they need to balance and they need to deliver on this thing in about six months. It was a, it was a key uh, a key component of the mayor's campaign, and it will be interesting to see how she how she balances both sides of this while while taking care of a very vulnerable population and a lot of demand for affordable housing. Indeed. Well, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I just tweeted the story out so you can read it for yourself and, and take in all the details of it. But who is on this task force? I think there perhaps is a bit of consternation even around who who that who that makeup is. Right. Anytime you put together a task force, there are going to be people that are upset that they're not on the task force. Um, it's it's 20 people. And uh, business people will say, you know, we've got about f- five or so of the 20 that are advocates of ours. But it's a lot of folks who come from uh, the low-income housing development world, which kind of reflects um, the direction, obviously, that Mayor Lightfoot wants to take it. She wants the city to be able to be able to provide more. So you'll see not-for-profit folks like Bickerdike Redevelopment Corporation, the Logan Square Neighborhood Association, um, Habitat Affordable Group. And then on the business side, we've got Jones Lang LaSalle, big development firm, Magellan Development, Cushman and Wakefield, DLA Piper, all folks who are very involved in these uh, big developments. And then there are three co-chairs. So the Metropolitan Planning Council, um, PNC, PNC Bank, which is a big lender for developments like these, uh, Preservation Compact. There's a big, big movement in the affordable housing um, arena to maintain the existing stock that the city has. That if we, if we are able to renovate the good existing housing stock we have on the south and west sides, it will actually keep a lot of areas affordable. And then we've got three aldermen. Um, Walter Burnett, who serves on the west side, which has struck an interesting balance. We've got this giant booming development in the West Loop. And then um, it's it's pushing further and further west and pricing folks out. So he's been an interesting um, case study in how you can try to balance this development and also help people uh, further west. Uh, Alderman Byron Sigcho Lopez, who is uh, the sponsor of the most aggressive remake of the city's code, and Alderman Harry Osterman, who's the head of the housing committee. Um, now, this this isn't going to be closed-door meetings. The city says they're going to open this up to as many people as they possibly can. Um, Mayor Lightfoot is very big on surveys and transparency and as many open meetings as possible. Um, but it's going to be tough for the leadership to kind of wrangle 20 people as a big task force group, and then there's going to be you know people pounding on the doors to get their voices in, too. Indeed. And so, you know, as you note in the story, you know, one of the issues that has come up is the idea of developers being able to opt out of providing affordable units on certain sites and, you know, paying fees instead and things like that. And there's a push to completely do away with that, it seems. Yes. So, like I said, the ARO um, gives developers options in a lot of areas where you can either build on-site or build off-site. And we've seen since the ARO was instituted in 2007, this was a, a daily initiative, 
only 444 units have actually been built pursuant to the ARO. Um, and that basically the level of rental subsidies that these fees have been supporting has stayed stagnant, even though the actual fees being paid has gone up. It's, it's helped about the same number of renters. Um, so doing away with that has developers very nervous that they'll be renting out um, these units at a, at a lower price. They won't be making as much money for basically uh, 30 years, I think, is the current current term of ARO units. Um, so, so they're scared they would miss out on a lot of money, and they think that basically this proposal from Alderman Byron Sicho Lopez would go way too far, and no developers would ever want to build anything new with, with any city help because they, they just couldn't make their money back. Of the groups that you described who kind of have stakes in the ground here, there's the kind of the neighborhood groups and then the business and development groups, Jones, Lang, LaSalle, et cetera. Do they, is there some agreement among them about common goals or is it, is it fairly divided even within the neighborhood and business sectors? Well, everyone, that's going to be, that's tough to say. I think um, people have staked out their, their public stances um and obviously a lot of these folks are advocacy organizations that have to show up and say you know i'm here defending my business interests but i I think everyone kind of has to trust that the other side um is at least going to be open at the table and it's up to mayor lightfoot to kind of set this agenda and say here's what i want the outcome of this thing to be um and she she's always tried to strike a delicate balance between the business community and inviting in um, jobs. Like Alderman Harry Osterman said, these provide construction jobs. Um, they uh, bring new people to neighborhoods. They can help neighborhood businesses. Uh, but also delivering on her affordable housing promise. But there's there's a number of ways they can go about this. It, it doesn't all have to be about the ARO. It could be about rental subsidies. It could be about renovations. Or it could be something completely new like incentives for developers. Um we just don't know yet. We're going to find out in about six months. Yeah. Okay. That was my next question is, is our timeline here. You mentioning six months. What are kind of those big milestones and potential, I don't want to say roadblocks, but, you know, potential obstacles and issues to overcome in the next six months? Obviously, kind of the division within the task force itself. Um, we also have a... The, the department that is running this is is brand new, the Department of Housing. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot brought it back. It was eliminated under Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And she brought in uh, Marissa Novara, who who helped author at her previous job at the Metropolitan Planning Council, this kind of blockbuster report on the legacy of segregation in the city of Chicago and, and redlining and how um, people had been historically lock, locked out of neighborhoods. Uh, people of color have been locked out of neighborhoods, locked out of loans, um, locked out of opportunities to live where there are good access to schools and grocery stores and uh, city opportunities and jobs. Um, so keeping that in mind, her her history and her knowledge and her advocacy for um, those seeking affordable housing and to find meaningful ways to end segregation, I will be interested to see how, how active she is in that and what kinds of uh, fingerprints she leaves on that. As far as goals, I know they are meeting monthly. I'll be interested to see what kinds of... Um, outside events when they open up the doors and let the public in to testify what that will look like but i think at the end of this we'll see some kind of report and i think lightfoot takes seriously that task forces are generally convened um and people think whenever there's a task force they're going to put out a report and that report is going to sit on a shelf and nothing will happen i think lightfoot uh should try to stay true to her word and actually propose an ordinance and do her best do her best to get it through um, as a signal that she is delivering on this campaign promise to increase affordable housing and and also i think task force are so often convened around topics that are already 
very emotionally charged and there's a lot of stuff around them already. So it's no easy task, I think, for any task force to wade through the things and, and reach some, you know, perfect thing. But it will be interesting to kind of to, to watch this one get moving and, and do its thing, I think. Agreed. I, uh, I'm a big, I'm a big waiting for task force report fan. There's one on, uh, <laughs> There's one that should come out on property taxes from the state before the end of the year. And I've been like, come on, come on. I want to see what's in it. Because, it's, you know, property taxes in the state of Illinois are a huge issue. And every other task force report, we all they all have the reputation for coming out and kind of being blockbusters. And then they sit for lack of action mm-hmm. on someone's part. Um, so I'll be I'll be anxious to see whether it's whether it's actionable and how much they can get done and whether they can get all of city council to agree to it. You know, we've got um, interesting coalitions of folks who are. Um, the downtown area is obviously rich for development. The west side, the near west side is rich for development. The near north side is rich for development. And we have aldermen who are saying, you know, we're shouldering a lot of the burden of affordable housing. We need to see this in every single area of the city. We need to see this in wealthy areas on the northwest side that are typically um, all residential, no rentals. Um, And this will just be another interesting front in the mayor's battle against um, aldermanic prerogative. And if you want to read more about that, Albie Albie Gallon here at Cranes just did an amazing, uh, just did an amazing piece about how a few aldermen are trying to use aldermanic prerogative to increase affordable housing in their wards. Yes, that's an, that is an interesting piece. Also, another interesting piece that kind of fits in with what we're talking about is uh, the piece, uh, I think it's on the website today, about this new tool that Cook County Tax Assessor Fritz Kage has unveiled to help people kind of put a little information together around property tax values and figure out property tax assessments because that's been, you know, because this task force comes at an interesting time when the when north part the north parts of Cook County has been reassessed south Cook County will happen this year and then city proper not until 2021. Interesting time where I think a lot of people are feeling a little hesitation and confusion about how to navigate. So kind of all this pulled together makes for a really interesting moment in city time. Right. And it was interesting to see Mayor Lightfoot at this event where uh, Kagi unveiled his property tax rate simulator tool, which is just a thrilling title. (laughs) Give it a catchy title, guy. Come on. Right. Right. You know, (laughs) sometimes you can't help it. Um, But it was interesting to see the mayor uh, kind of publicly backing Fritz and saying, you know, both of us were elected on this platform of transparency and equity and making sure that the systems that the city the city and county operate are trustworthy and that people can trust that the work we're doing is reliable and accurate. And Fritz has been saying over and over, I know this seems like a lot of upheaval. We are doing this in a uniform way. And here is a tool where you can see just how much what I do affects your final property tax bill, because he will say, you know, there are several steps to, to the to how we land on what you're actually charged and the assessment, which is his valuation of how much a property is worth, is only part of that. So this is, I think part of it is an education tool and part of it is don't place all the blame on me. If right. Goes up. <laughs> right. I don't want to take all the blame here. Don't call me anymore. Right. right. Indeed. All right. 80 Quig from Crane Chicago Business. Thanks so much for checking in with us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, news is next here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN, it's Amy Guth in for Anna Devlantis today with you till 3 o'clock. Thanks for joining along and sharing part of your afternoon with me. I appreciate you. Well, next up, I'm really excited for this next guest because this is a really interesting topic. I'm fascinated by behavioral science. I'm fascinated by what in the heck makes people act the way they do, right? I think we all can agree on that. We're puzzled by other people sometimes. But recently, I don't know if you saw it, there was an ad that Peloton put out that suddenly Twitter 
Twitter erupted in criticism. So there's a lot to talk about. If you haven't ta- if you haven't seen it, we're going to talk about it here in just a little bit. But I want to welcome our guest. That is Jeff Chrysler. He is the editor in chief of PeopleScience.com and the best selling co author of the book Dollars and Cents: How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. So so talk to me a bit about, you know, this Peloton ad. I think a lot of people have talked about it. It's been shared bajillions of times on social media. And a lot of people found a lot of it became the intersection of a lot of different social issues. You know, there was there was a lot of gender role stuff. There was sexism. There was, you know, everything. So many things came together in this one ad. But talk us through that, if you would. Sure. So the ad for those that somehow have avoided seeing it basically showed a woman getting a Peloton bike as a gift from her husband. And then it was a series of her taking cell phone videos of her using it for the first time and being apprehensive and then dragging herself out of bed and getting a shout out and at the end telling her husband how thankful she was to him that it changed her life. And the ad has gotten very justified criticism because it it was, I think, very poorly produced and acted in it. What really bothers me is that it missed an opportunity to highlight what actually is special about Peloton, and that, of course, is the behavioral science, which I'm sure we'll get into in a minute. But it just, as you said, it, it hit a confluence of stuff. It hit gender roles. Um, it hit this like commercial moment we're in with, with you know, the holiday spirit and buying and expressing love through purchases. And it, it touched on so many things because I think it, it was tone deaf, not just to the audience, but to its own message. Yeah. And and you know, when you're trying to sell something, you got to stick to what makes you special. And I think they miss that. Yeah. And, you know, this is something we see so often with brands. You know, anytime I think it happens the most when there is a trending hashtag or trending thing mm-hmm. and a brand tries to hop on board with it and say something cute and kitschy and then immediately just kind of gets clobbered by people going, how are you being so tone deaf? I mean, that's exactly the phrase, right? Tone deaf. It's like, how are you not reading the room? How are you being insensitive? How are you? How could you think to say that? And usually then there's a statement of, oh, we've fired our social media person and we have somebody new and, and whatever. But, you know, we, we see this happening again and again and again, generally with brands. So sometimes with people and in, in higher profiles. You'd think we would learn at some point. But I think part of this is 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 the the moment we're in culturally coupled with the nature of social media to some extent. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's if you make a misstep and people can smell it, if you will, they, they smell the blood in the water. Yeah. Uh, and I think, again, what particularly galls me about this ad is that Peloton actually has the the product and the design to make a real statement in this moment in this sort of superficial culture that's caught up with how you look and all that, because actually that's not what Peloton's about. Right. Peloton's about like the inner fire. It's about um, intrinsic motivation. It's about us like connecting to a purpose and being part of a tribe and like not dragging ourselves out of bed, but jumping out of bed. Uh, and yet they played opposite of what they're really about and played into this justified criticism culture. Um, and that's, I think, you know, people really, even though it's a no Peloton, no they misfired. Yeah. Um, and that's the missed opportunity there. Yeah, agreed. Certainly agreed. And it, I thought it was interesting, too, to see how the actors from that ad, they kind of went public at some point. It was like, guys, they're acting. They're not actually that couple, <laughs> which I thought was like, guys, everybody <laughs> take a breath. Everybody calm down about this thing. Just, yeah. Was it uh, I think Ryan Reynolds has a vodka or, or, or a gin product or something like that and hired the, 
um, the actress that played the, the gift receiver um, to just sort of sit in the bar and exhale and, and drink. Um, it's very, <laughs> it's very clever. That is very clever. Um, I mean, this, anyway, this might be like game changing for both of their careers because like, oh, you're the one from that one Peloton ad. <laughs> exactly. I mean, look, this this ad has gotten more play for the controversy. Um, you know, they say there's no such thing as, as bad publicity. That's one of the oldest expressions. I don't know if I agree, yeah. um, but I suppose for this uh, poor trapped wife actress playing that poor trapped wife. Maybe it'll be a boost. Yeah, yeah, perhaps it will. Perhaps it will. Well, we're going to take a break here in a couple minutes, but but I want to talk more uh, before we do about the nature of, of the work that you're doing and and about people science. I'm, I'm fascinated with this idea of kind of always looking at what is what is the message behind this ad or the show or this this thing we're looking at culturally and the behavioral science with that I think is such a fascinating topic. I would love for you to share a little bit about that work if you would. Absolutely. Um, after the break, you want a little preview now. Let's go a little preview now. Okay. So I'll, I'll say, you know, behavioral science is basically the study of the often unconscious forces that guide our decisions, like why we make stupid mistakes from spending to, you know, uh, eating cake when we're trying to be on a diet or not getting up to exercise or why we do the things that we know we shouldn't do. Um, and often, like, just what drives our choices. Uh, and in the context of Peloton and what Peloton actually does, you know, they they touch into these unconscious things that drive us, this idea of tribalism I mentioned earlier, like being part of the, the Peloton brand and team that motivates people. Um, having, you know, there's a little function on Peloton where you can high-five someone, um, and that sort of recognition and, and encouragement makes a difference and helps people really, you know, get going and be part of what's going on. And um, there's, uh, you know, this a thing called endowed progress, um, this idea that, like, once we start on something, we're going to keep going to complete it. Um, a real quick example of that, the classic study was if you give someone a punch card, like free coffee if you get 10 punches, um, they'll complete it at some rate. But if you give someone a punch card that says free coffee at 12 punches, but the first two are already stamped, they're going to be more likely to complete it because they've sort of already started. Even they still have to get those 10 punches, the same as the other one, just the idea of getting on the way. Um, and that's something that's just an unconscious driver of, of human behavior. Um, it, and in the case of Peloton, that's what they do. Is they tell you, you're going, you're going, you're on the way. That's very, very interesting to me. I, I mean, I think we see so many examples of that around us, but but specifically when we're thinking about the transactional part, when we're looking at, um, you know, and as you said, now there's so much focus on everybody's doing their holiday ad campaigns, things like that. There's so much, there's so many messages that real love is this gift, this one mm -hmm. thing, you know, I mean, immediately all the jewelry ads start, show her you care with it. I'm like, oh my God, show her you care by yeah. not being a jerk. How about that? <laughs> like being a good partner, right. you know, and I think it's an interesting time. And I, and I, personally think we need so much more of this thought in our around us we need to be examining more of what is this ad saying to me what is it really doing uh, you know what what's the real message here because i think sometimes really negative messages get passed on in our in advertising in the media that we're consuming you know to to sell us things because let's face it like the cosmetics industry for example i think is entirely banking on all of us feeling like we have some kind of flaw that needs fixing or skincare or anti-aging and things like that. Here's a huge industry that's 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 dependent on us feeling like I'm not enough. I need to be more. I need sure. to be younger. I need to be better. Sure. I mean, if, you know, not to get too philosophical, but it's hard to you know, value our life's worth. 
right? Like, how do we assess, like, what is, what is love? What is family? What is meaning, right? All these big questions, that even, those are things we do think about, even if we don't recognize it. And so then we, we reach for something tangible to measure instead, whether that's money, uh, it's a type of gift, or it's competing with other people. Oh, this guy got, you know, that type of a car or that type of a house. And so we end up substituting the things that we can measure and that are specific for those things that are emotional, um, and that ultimately behavioral science is about recognizing, hey, there's emotions that are at play, whether it's your decision for how much to save for retirement or uh, what job to have or how much you're going to buy for your spouse at the holidays. Uh, and it's because, you know, we are emotional creatures that often don't deal with the emotions and then say go for something else. And at this time of year, the marketers know that. Um, the great example, you mentioned the jewelry ad. That's one of the things that sets me off this time of year. The other one is like, the car commercials that, you know, have someone competing saying, I just saved, you know, $2,000. Well, actually, you just spent $40,000. That's the real thing. Sure, maybe you didn't spend forty two, but, you know, conflating savings with what you're spending um, is a big trick of people these times of year, too. Yeah, certainly. And you're right. There are lots of car ads that are like, gal- that, you know, here's this, this car kind of like galloping through the snow to a very happy time. But you've saved all this right now. <laughs> it's, it's very manipulative in a lot of ways. And, and I mean, but that's, that's how things get sold. It's an interesting topic. I think about this topic so much. So I'm so glad to be talking with you right now. We're going to take a little break here in a sec. And when we come back, I want to continue this conversation about behavioral science. I want to talk more about your website, People Science, and a little bit about your book, too. We're talking with Jeff Chrysler, who is the editor-in-chief of aforementioned website, back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. Hello, it's Amy Guth in for Anna Devlantis today. We have been talking with Jeff Chrysler, who is the editor in chief of People Science and co-author of the best-selling book Dollars and Cents: How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. Jeff, I'm so delighted to talk with you because this is—I I just love this topic. I think about this so much, so I'm so glad to to have somebody here to talk with about all this stuff I'm always thinking about and and yelling at my television when I see ads and things like that. <laughs> well, so we were kind of beginning our. our delve into behavioral science and how it applies to uh, to commercials in particular, especially this time of year. So many things are getting advertised to us saying, oh, this jewelry is love or this this car is this and this and this. Um, but what other areas when when we talk about behavioral science, what other areas uh, does your work play play a very important role? Uh, well, what's been fascinating to me is I got into this field by looking at financial decision making. Essentially, that's what the book Dollars and Cents is about, is why we make dumb mistakes, <laughs> to put it in very layman's term. Like, why do we make irrational choices, um, whether it's about, again, retirement or purchasing or spending or saving? And what I learned is, obviously, it has great impact in the financial world, but like the same forces that impact our financial decision making, some version of them affect our decision making in healthcare in exercise and diet, as well as employee engagement, incentives, motivations, um, ethics, uh, compliance, uh, personal relationships, event and experience design, like why, how we choose where we travel, what value we get out of travel. Like So much of our lives are guided essentially by emotional and often irrational decisions or um, sort of these hidden forces that affect how we judge the value of something, whether that's something we might purchase or something we might eat or do. Um, or an experience we might have, um, it, it's everywhere. And, you know, it's sometimes been overwhelming to see how everywhere it is, from our TV ads to, uh, you know, our apps on our phones. 
Um, but a lot of you know, the design and, and sales and pitching of, of products and services and experience is sort of based upon like how humans might react to them um, without even thinking about it. And, you know, in many ways, it's sort of a, a field that people have sort of always uh, sort of figured out with common sense often what's going on. But in recent years, the last 10 or 15 years, it's grown to have real scientific backing and testing um, so that like sort of what's been instinctual um, or things that we've experienced has the, the real backing saying, yeah, you're, you're not just crazy. That's actually what's going on. That's so interesting to me. And what about the, you mentioned healthcare? Where do we see this playing in, in healthcare decisions the most? Um, so I think there's amazing potential there. And a lot of the work that's been done early on has been on healthcare, particularly in like, the, I know the field of, of diabetes. Um, diabetes, you know, you can measure the outcome of something uh, because you test the blood, like how much sugar is there, your A1C, like all these figures. Uh, and a lot of times people, when they have chronic disease like, like diabetes, much to the shock of someone like myself, um, because I haven't suffered from that, like they don't always stick to their diet or medication or their, their regimen to take care of what they're supposed to do because it involves change, um, it involves a lot of emotion, a lot of like confronting the fact that you have this disease. Um, so a lot of behavioral design people have sort of tried to create, um, whether it's a, an app or a delivery system or whatever it may be, just ways to get people to make just small changes because even small changes to someone's diet or medication can have a big impact. Um, so, you know, healthcare is something that if we stop and think about it, we know what we should do. Like we know that we should not open the fridge and grab the, um, you know, the cream cheese to spread on top of our cookies and spray with chocolate syrup. Um, but in the moment, it feels good to do that. So we often lack the self-control. And behavioral science finds ways to make it so that, like, you know what, instead we grab that apple that's on the table Um you know, I've, I've simplified, but the point is it looks at like these choices that we make in the moment and that emotional, the heated and irrational moment and tries to give us better options. Well, and you've already started going where, where I want to take you next. And that is, you know, especially when we're talking about money, because I think that one, everybody, you know, has, we can say it's all business and it's all money, but I think everybody has a lot of feelings around money, particularly their own money uh, or their lack of, you know, I think money is such a big one and so emotionally charged, even though we might say, oh, it's just business. It's, it's never just business indeed. But I'm curious about how to, I, I don't want to say trick yourself, but how to use behavioral science in, and, and educate yourself to, in order to make better choices. Because you're exactly right. We all know that we should eat the apple, not the candy bar. But yet in the moment, sometimes you're like, oh, it's here. It's just one or whatever. You know, how, right. how do we teach ourselves to make stronger choices that we know we should be making? Sure. Um, you're opening a giant Pandora's box because <laughs> there's a ton of different ways to do it. I'll, I'll give you the, the big overview. And it, it starts by like acknowledging and admitting and accepting that everyone makes money mistakes. You know, I talk to like wealth advisors and big companies bring me in and even the people that manage other people's money make mistakes with their own money um, because it is emotional and we are rational. So A, everyone does it. There's no shame in making money mistakes. Um, the second thing is we like, we can't really change human nature. We can't change these, these forces that impact us. But if we start to understand our human nature and understand like what types of mistakes we make, like we fall for sale prices or name brands, or, uh, you know, we fall for people that pretend to make too much effort and use the word artisanal all the time. If we, if we see what impacts us, then we can create systems and environments and sort of checks on ourselves that address those things. Um, and I'll give you one uh, specific example that, that we often recommend to people 
um, particularly those that, that find themselves spending way too much monthly, like in their discretional spending. Um, there's a thing called mental accounting, which is that we think about money differently depending on it's often literally what account it's in. And in this case, we think about how much money we have to spend based upon what's in our checking account, like what's in our app, what's at our ATM, our checking account. And if we just put some money in like a savings account, I don't mean retirement, just a simple savings account. It can be automatically withdrawn every week or two weeks from your paycheck. We're kind of hiding money from ourselves and we'll end up spending less because there'll be less money in our checking account. And that's what we just mentally think we have to spend. So if you find yourself overspending a lot, you recognize your human nature that you spend to your checking account limit and you make a system hiding money from your checking account to keep yourself in line. Um, and that money's there if you need it. If you have an emergency or you need the money for some reason, it's still your money, uh, but you're just sort of tricking yourself a little bit to make a better choice. I, I feel like I need you to just come like deal with my whole life right now, Jeff. <laughs> There's so much here. There's so much here. I'm happy. You... I love Chicago. I'll visit. I'm, no problem. That's great. I think you would be very fascinating to just like walk around a mall or a supermarket with because you'd be like, okay, that is really saying this. And I'd be like, you're so right. That's yeah. so good. That's so interesting. Well, I assume a lot of the things you were just talking about are addressed in your book, How We Misthink Money and How to Send, uh, I'm sorry, Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. But what are the, uh, you know, what are some other big takeaways? in your book in the in the short time that we have left i want to make sure we get to those uh yeah there's again a ton there one i would say is that we um we often fall for effort or like outward signs of effort as a substitute for the value of something Uh, the classic example is if you have a locksmith that takes an hour to open your door and he sweats and swears and breaks uh, a lock and has to go back and forth to get new equipment but he spends an hour you'll be inclined to pay that locksmith more than a locksmith that walks up and opens the door in a minute because you're seeing all this amazing effort. Well, the truth is you're paying for incompetence. Mm-hmm. Like it, it should be like experience that teaches the person how to do it for a minute, but we fall for that. And, and that happens in, in a ton of contexts uh, from even something um, like Uber, right? Uber has a terrible corporate reputation, but what Uber does is they you open the app and you see all these cars and they show you the effort it takes to pick a car right for you and to find your location. And then you watch the car slowly creep down the street. And seeing all that effort makes us value the experience and the service more. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm not to say don't use Uber, but the point is to at least recognize that, that oftentimes a show of effort um, is there to sort of increase the value to us. Like going to a fancy restaurant. Like the long description of wine or, or something on the menu with flowery language that enhances what we think is the effort that's gone in. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't go and enjoy that restaurant. I mean, there is like a reason why we like to have that experience. Um, but we often fall forward in context when, when we shouldn't. Very, very interesting. I feel like we need hours longer, Jeff. I have so many other questions to ask you. So many things. You guys got my. You guys got my number. That's I'll right. Be, that's I'll right. Be waiting on the phone. <laughs> I, I would love to have you back another time because I feel like this is a topic we can we can apply behavioral science science to absolutely everything in our lives and become better for thinking through it and kind of sifting through those pieces. So I super appreciate your time and appreciate you being with us. Where can people find you online? And I'm sure lots of people have lots of questions they want to follow up with you about. Sure. Uh, the best place would be to check out peoplescience.com, uh, in part because it doesn't just talk about financial decisions, but all sorts of decisions um, in, in every realm of life. Uh, and you can always track me down. My last name is K-R-E-I-S-L-A-R. It's Jeff Chrysler um, on social media and all those various fun places. And for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sure and tweet out links to everything we've just talked about. I made a list, Jeff. There's a lot of stuff we talked about. I really appreciate your time, and I would love to talk with you another time. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. 
All right. The news is next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom. Seven twenty WGN. Amy Guth in for Anna Davlantis this afternoon with you till three o'clock. Thanks for sharing part of your afternoon with me. Well, friends, I have a very special guest in studio for you next. I am joined now by Rob Leone. He is one of the principals of a fascinating new endeavor called Beyond. This is so interesting. It is kind of I'm, I'm, there's so much to it. It's almost hard to describe, but it's like a one-stop shop for absolute holistic wellness. So it's, it's like your doctor and your yoga teacher know each other and your, you know, the person who's drawing your blood, like all these people know and they're all looking at your, your wellness plan. That is such an interesting idea that I, I'm like, why doesn't that exist everywhere? But you did it and you're doing it and it's happening right, right here in Chicago. Tell us more about that if you would. Uh, thank you, Amy. Yes. We're so excited about our concepts and, you certainly nailed a couple of the bits and pieces of what we're doing. But in general, Beyond is a, is a private members club that is built on this foundation of holistic wellness and social well-being. And our concepts stem from just our own personal like experiences and frustrations. And, and as we're getting older and really being more conscious about our own personal health, we, we started commenting on how we're going all over the city. And it's so difficult to find the right yoga studio, find the right great hit teacher in the fitness classes, go to the uh, uh, phenomenal acupuncturist or massage therapist. And we started kind of putting together all these different elements that the three of us, uh, my partner, Joe Fisher and Kevin Bain, like, man, we're spending so much time with just our logistics alone. What if we just designed this perfect place that had all these elements that, that we love and we believe in, um, in a great space. And so we kind of started with this dream scenario I said, okay, what if, what would this perfect health experience be like? And what if we built this amazing gym and got some of the best personal trainers that could lead customized classes? Perfect. Love that. What if we had a great yoga studio with the best instructors? Because as we know, the yoga experience is so much about the instructors. Definitely. And as we've seen this proliferation of growth in yoga, some of the quality of instruction is varied. So I'm very specific on who I go see within the yoga realm all alone. Um, what if we had a you know great and talented massage therapist that not only knew your body but knew the the elements that you're working on and healing, and and we could bring in the right acupuncturist. And when you have the right acupuncturist, that is a true healer. The amazing experience can evolve from that. And so all these elements continued to grow. And we initially started this concept. It was probably about six thousand square feet, and it kept on growing. We started bringing these elements in, and now we have this incredible over twenty one thousand square foot space in River North. It's being built out right now, and we're super excited to, uh, what we're, we're doing here. And and so it's going to be in the space that used to be Japanese, right there, that uh, like Larrabee in Chicago, kind of right there before the bridge, this kind of like beautiful... Exactly, which Japanese was a very powerful yeah. space, a great experience, and it's been closed for a couple of years, but it's the Japanese space plus another 10,000 square feet. Okay, even it's, bigger, because that was a big place. Exactly, and, and we have the street level right on Chicago Avenue mm-hmm. at 600 West Chicago, and then the Riverwalk as well, which is a super powerful experience along the Riverwalk yeah. alone. And we there's a great lounge down there that we've expanded a, a, upon uh, to the north, and um, we're just thrilled. It's a powerful building. You know, it was built in 1908. It was the old Montgomery Ward building. It was the oldest, and, and it was the biggest uh, cement reinforced building in the world back in 1908. A little bit of trivia. Interesting. Yeah. And and uh, now it's just it's the perfect ideal space for what we're doing. Yeah, and then you, then you bring in kind of the medical piece of that, which I mm-hmm. think is so interesting because there's so often a divide. You know, you go get your physical from your doctor. Like, do you exercise? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Not much more to it than that, but here you're kind of bringing all that together, and I think that part is very interesting. Truly, and this was where really our concept started taking off as we started 
talking with some of the top medical practitioners in the city, and it's our concept really resonated because we have all these practitioners that are communicating together, and we have this incredible medical team. It's led by uh, our chief medical officer is Angelo Costas, who has his own practice at Chicago Michigan Avenue internist. Um, he's also the lead internist doc for the Chicago Blackhawks. We brought in Mike Terry, who's the chief orthopedic doc for the Blackhawks. And both those guys are just incredibly respected, both in the city and nationwide. So certainly not amateurs, people that know what they're right. doing, certainly. Right. Yes. And to hear their excitement yeah. about our, uh, you know, our philosophy of combining Eastern and Western yeah. uh, ideals and their openness to that, I think that was a very powerful moment for us. And then our, as our medical board continued to evolve, we brought in key components like Dr. Kelly Sims, who's a naturopathic doctor, and she specializes in women's health and nutrition and hormone balance. Brought in George Champis, who's the chief medical officer for the Chicago Marathon, the U.S. Men's World Cup soccer team. So he's an expert in the rest and recovery and all the best training methods. Mm. We have Dr. Lee Hyotis, who's a weight loss specialist in maintenance. So we have these great, powerful, true experts yeah. that are not only just there to, to put their you know name again, they're truly collaborating. We have these powerful board meetings already. And so everything we're doing and we're bringing in modalities that are vetted and they're proven and everything that we put in the, the space is, is gone through the medical board. I think that's really, really interesting because I, I get the sense people kind of crave that. You know, there, there's the, there's such a divide between, and I think there's a lot of frustration. I mean, personally, I've experienced that. I had a very severe injury after a car accident and it was like, well, you know, your, your bone healed, you're fine. It was like, well, but everything still hurts. What's going on? You know, and it was a major injury. It was most of the right side of my body that was broken in this car crash. And it was very frustrating to me. And as I went through that process, doing more yoga and finding relief in that, things like that, I found a lot of people that had very similar experiences of getting like, yes, it healed the bone, but then I was still uncomfortable. There was still more. And the only solution was like a prescription that I didn't want, things like that. I mean, that was, in my case, it was like, here, have some opioids. I was like, I'm not going to even fill that. I don't, I have to function. I want my brain. I don't even take aspirin. Right. And, and I think I just ran into so many people that had that experience that, that what you're saying is really resonating to me because I, I think people kind of crave that. Like I, I want to not just heal, but I want to just heal bones, but I want to heal my whole self. And yes. The all, holistic all approach a hundred percent. And what you're saying is so true and is exactly what we're doing with the prescription and the opioids. Obviously we see the epidemic that's out there, yeah. but we have a holistic approach. It's going to be Eastern and Western herbs and tinctures. Interesting. But the entire purpose of trying to get people off of prescription drugs. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot here. I have so many questions I still want to ask you. Uh, We have to take a break right now, but we'll be right back. We're talking with Rob Leone, who's one of the principals of Beyond, a new wellness concept happening right here in Chicago. More when we come back here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN, Amy Guth in for Anna Davlantis this afternoon with you till three o'clock. I've been talking with Rob Leone. He is one of the founding people behind, one of the principals behind Beyond, which is a new wellness concept that is happening right here in Chicago. Chicago. That sounds so wonderful. I'm my blood pressure is going down just talking about this, Rob. It sounds so good. So we we talked a little bit before the break about the approach of of kind of integrative medicine. You have some of the best doctors in town. I mean, the Blackhawks guy, the marathon guy. Like you've got some some real ballers on the roster here. It sounds wonderful, but it does not stop there. So you have all these. Uh, I want to ask you about the space of the place, but I, I don't want to do that yet because I, I really want to talk about all the food there too. That's such a big part of this. Tell me about that if you would. Well, our food, of course, will be led by Kevin Bain, one of our partners, and who's one of the co-founders of Boca Restaurant Group. 
They have an, over 20 restaurants in the city of Chicago, and they just won the James Beard Foundation Award for Restaurant Tours of the Nation. I mean, that's no small thing, right? No, that is about as the high accolade as you can get in the industry. So he certainly knows um, hospitality. And we, I think really what we're doing here is not only is the food going to be great, but we're bringing that level of hospitality through all the elements of our club. And so we have this phenomenally uh, designed space, which is designed by Karen Harold and Studio K, and this has become a passion project of hers. And we had the luxury of staying in her studio for a year while we're really going through this concept. And that was a great experience in itself. But Kevin and his team bring this expertise in obviously the food and nutrition. And our, uh, it, the, our menu will be curated by Lee Wollen, Who's the executive chef at Boca Restaurant, at Boca Restaurant and Somerset? He's a Michelin star award-winning chef. So I have this incredible, diverse menu that is very healthy, nutritious, and it's been, we'll have some um, sushi available to our members as well. And obviously, nutrition is a, is a core component of a person's health and wellness. Sure, you can't go this far and like go double down on having this excellent care and doing all these wellness activities and acupuncture and yoga and all that, and then just eat garbage. No, you have to eat well too. 100%. And we'll have fresh pressed juices and great smoothies and artisanal tea program. The whole arsenal. So can I live there? That's kind of what I'm, That's what I'm going to. <laughs> yes. No, we truly, we're trying to create the sanctuary yeah. and, and an environment that you do want to spend hours at end if you can. And along with being logistically convenient, so you're getting back a little bit of the time instead of traveling all over the city. You have a place that you can come to and you can go do a class. You can... Have, have a, you know, a healthy meal, a breakfast afterwards. You can get on your laptop and work, and there's a great social space and for co-working and available. Um, and truly, and if you want to go back and get an acupuncture or massage treatment and combine that with some sort of modality that will enhance the value of that uh, treatment, it's great. Go for it. So yeah. it's like spa day on steroids. Uh, even yes. deeper, <laughs> even deeper. But I want to talk more about that space because, uh, you know, I, in the description of it, I'm seeing things like 1500 vinyl <laughs> records organized by mood and things like that. And I'm very interested to hear more about that. Well, we're having so much fun with this concept. We're really designing it like, what would we do? To, how can we have a great time with here and be responsible, but do something unique? And so we say, gosh, I love the, the, the sound and the crackle of a vinyl album. Like, who doesn't like that? And let's bring that back. So we're bringing in this incredible Macintosh sound system and have 1,500 or 2,000 albums that will be sorted by mood. And we'll have recommended listening you know, up there on the wall, but you can come in and I'm just going to have a fun time. And make That's part of the social experience that is so vital to a person's overall wellness. That's really fun. I, I feel like I need to organize everything. My life by mood, color, like, like my clothes and my books and everything by mood. I don't feel like wearing that day. And, but I now I'm, I'm, as I'm driving and I'm listening to some classic rock station or whatever it is, and all of a sudden I feel the, my energy feeding off of that music. Sure. I, I have to take a picture. Like, this is this is one of the albums that they make sure gotta, that we have. Got to add that vinyl. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. And and so, so this will be membership-based, so people will get a membership, and then they have access to all the things in the facility. Mm -hmm. How does that process work, and how, pe how can people find out a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, our website, which is livebeyond, that's L-I-V-E-B-I-A-N.com, uh, uh, there's an application on the site that you can fill out, and we've had a tremendous response already, just, and we've just started our PR campaign, but to hear the stories of people of why our concept resonates with them, what they're doing already, and how they can see beyond improving their lives, is, it's been very powerful. And one of the best things about it is how our, our, our concept resonates with a wide demographic. So 
we kind of expected this idea to resonate with a 40 and 50 year old, maybe 60 year old crowd. Mm -hmm. The younger demographic, the 30 year olds, the late 20s, they are very involved in holistic care already. I'm really impressed with that. And it's been inspirational to hear these stories of how these people are going all over the place and had great stories like yourself. And they had to kind of piece things together on Mm -hmm. their own. And for us to bring everything under one vetted, great environment, people like, I've been waiting for this to open. I've been waiting to be in a community of like-minded individuals. We have these powerful... Um, membership meetings every week and we, we look at all the applications we go over everything and it's really inspirational it's one of our favorite parts uh, of the week to hear all these great stories that's got to be so interesting I, I wonder if there's something you could do with all of these stories like here you'll have this group of people that probably have a lot of powerful stories of life-changing experiences with wellness maybe there's a i don't know maybe there's a podcast there too i, no, I think something. so like yeah. i'd like to one of the, the guys that i met two weeks ago he's incredibly educated all the best institutions and it, it told me about his journey he, he lost a hundred pounds two years ago and he's just been slowly going on this journey but he's maintained it but he just wanted mm-hmm. to be in this community where his mission is once a month he wants to do some sort of race whether it's a one mile you know fun trot he wants to lead up into some sort of like half iron man like this is great let's build this community together Let's have these people that want to go on that path with you. Um, I had another great story from this woman who unfortunately lost her husband to um, a, a one of the, the Widowmaker experience, right? So he was 55 years old. I was doing a triathlon and, and, and unfortunately had a heart attack. Oh, no. Terrible story. But she's turned that incredible negative to this inspirational positive. She became an, a highly accomplished amateur athlete in her own right got sponsored by zoot wetsuits and she's motivated and she said one of the things that she really loves about beyond is our executive physical where that is something that is a preventative measure Mm -hmm. that you possibly could have identified some issues you know with her her late husband and it's it's that kind of preventative care that we're really i think is another reason that we're going to change and transform the way people are taking care of their own health. So interesting. So fast, let's fast forward a year or two in the future. What does the Beyond Space look like? What's the activity like? What's happening there? I think it's going to be this great balance. We'll be open you know, most of the day from 5.30 in the morning to 10 at night. We want to have a very lively environment. Um, we have classes in the morning, a great wide range of programming. We'll have tons of yoga classes. We'll have studio classes with Matt Pilates. We have sometimes where the, 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 there's no mats at all in the studios. One of the conveniences, by the way, of our yoga classes, uh, there'll be infrared heat, but you can go on your app and reserve your yoga mat. It'll be waiting for you. You don't have to lug that in. Oh, now you're speaking my language. Right? Okay, nice. You don't have to like get people to move right. once they're all chill it's and settle all their in. position safely. You can spot. just go in. It's all about the member experience. Nice. So, um, again, to your point about having this great beyond day, I think that will be the environment we're creating. But uh, the, uh, our true greatest development of what we're doing is creating this environment of people. And it, it's a very diverse crowd. We're, we like to say we're very inclusive, but exclusive overall. But we, we love the diversity. We want to be building this inspirational group of people that are proactive about their health. They're open-minded about new ideas. They want to be involved in, in all the different possibilities of improving their health and wellness. And it can be inspired by people around them. I love it. Well, it sounds really wonderful. Again, I think my blood pressure just went down a lot just talking about this and imagining this wonderful space. So uh, good luck with this. It's uh, what's, what's the timeline for when it opens? So we're currently uh, in demo and construction phase. Uh, we're targeting August of 2020 to open. Um, and again, to the me- the point of the membership experience, we're not going to open our entire club to all our members at once. We're going to slowly open it up to our, our founding members, which we're just about full on that list. We're targeting around 1,000 to 1,500 members in total. 
which vastly differs from a couple of the clubs, which are 10,000. There's you know, packing you know, people uh, in yes, there. Like and you're, yeah. Right, right, right. So and, and every 30 to 60 days, we'll activate a number of uh, a couple hundred of members until we get to the happy spot where there's great energy in the space, but you can still get the mat you want. Mm-hmm. You can still get on the machines you want. There's still space in the meditation room. And then the whole medical facility is available as well. Because so. we don't want to overwhelm these elite doctors with all, with all these you know tons no. of people, right? Correct. We want to keep it, keep it good for all of them. Well, thanks so much for coming in and talking about this. This sounds really wonderful. Uh, I'm excited to see all that is ahead for you at Beyond. Again, go to livebeyond.com. If you follow me on Twitter, I'm going to tweet out a link to it so you can find it there, find the website there uh, and all those things. And of course, there'll be a link at wgnradio.com when we post the podcast. Rob Leon, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you, Amy. All right, we're going to take a little break. Back in just a bit on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth in for Anna Davlantis this afternoon. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate you for sharing part of your afternoon with me here. So our next guest is joining us by phone, and that is Lisa Cruz, who founded Red Shoes PR a number of years ago, and she has won so many awards since then. She was recently named to the 2018 Top Women in PR by PR News. She's also been recognized by the Women's Business Enterprise National Council and as a certified women business, uh, women's business enterprise and women's, women's own small business. I can't even talk today because she's won so many darn awards. I can't even get them all out of my mouth, but she joins us now by phone. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. It is a pleasure to talk with you and all your listeners today. It is a pleasure to talk with you. You're joining us from Wisconsin, so you're you're in the neighborhood. You're you're close, just on the other side of the cheese curtain. There, neighbors. Yeah, that's yep, right. Absolutely, that's right. So you know, I, I love that that you're often referred to in the PR world as the fixer. I think that's wonderful and great. And anyone called the fixer, I think, is someone I want to know and have on my side. <laughs> um, so, but but crisis PR is a lot of what you do. Which uh, you know, we were talking about that a little bit earlier at the top of the show in anticipation of talking with you about how important that is. We think of it sometimes as OPR is press releases and and all that, but planning for crisis is is something I think is a lot of people don't want to do it because surely that won't happen to me or my business. And then suddenly you need crisis PR. So what can people do ahead of time to get themselves ready for maybe uh, a a misstep if their company or or maybe an employee does something they need to work out in the public conversation or something like that? Yep, yep, absolutely. So there's, it's kind of funny because there's two reasons people call us. One is they need a crisis communication plan, which I strongly encourage any company organization should have. And the other reason people call us is something just happened, and so we get more of a reaction sort of stance from the company, and they're saying, now what do we do? So I go back to point number one being you have the time before a crisis hits to do a thorough and comprehensive planning process and have that plan in place. And and what we find is typically through that planning process, you discover liabilities within your organization and you're able to mitigate those liabilities ahead of time. Maybe technology, you know, only one person has access to the Facebook page and they're out of town when a crisis hits. So it's looking for things like that that might even make the the crisis worse when it does occur. Mm, that's a very, very good point. And I, I've always heard that that same thing of the best time to plan for a crisis is well before it happens, because if someone is calling around looking for uh, looking for a PR partner, once crisis is happening, they're already in a world of hurt. 
already too late. And what we always say is it's so hard and challenging to put the genie back in the bottle once it's out. And I've had numerous occasions where somebody might have already done the interview or interviews or video and posted it online. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to start with this one? How do we back this up and make it right? Um, Fortunately for us and the organizations we work with, we typically come out of these okay, but it's that much harder once things go public, once things are rolling for us to kind of step in and course correct. So we'd much rather, I always tell companies and organizations, if you think, I wonder if I should call a PR agency, and this could be at the point of maybe thinking about something that's coming down the road a couple months, six months, if you have that thought, the time is now to call the crisis communications firm. That's very interesting. And I I like the idea of having a plan in place. That's so important, even though even if you don't necessarily know, you you can't anticipate what's going to happen. Having a general sense of, you know, we need to make sure that the leader is out front and not being an idiot. We need to make sure that, uh, you know, the following we 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 touch, you know, we we interact with the customers through the following touch points through social media and through the website and all this. And just just thinking through that sounds like a wonderful business exercise for any business leader or even a, a, a solo entrepreneur, somebody who maybe is in a service provider of some kind working independently, things like that. Absolutely. I highly recommend it to any organization. And what I always tell leaders or those in a leadership position or maybe in charge of marketing brand is you Spend, many companies spend thousands, if not millions and billions of dollars in growing their brand. Why wouldn't you take the time and resources to do what you can to protect it through a crisis communication plan when you have the time? Yeah, certainly. I, you know, I, I think, too, it, it seems like we were talking about this a little bit earlier, esteemed producer, producer Jasmine Cooper and I were talking about this, of how um, sometimes people, brands make a terrible mistake by shutting down and saying nothing when, oh. you know, Twitter, meanwhile, is going wild, going, why, you know, answer us, we want answers, we want answers. And then no matter what you say, your answer is going to be wrong because you've just waited so long. So kind of the new speed of things is challenging, but I think it, it, we have to just uh, agree that that's the reality and, and go with it. And, and that, again, goes back to the preparation, pulling a plan together. So when that situation occurs and things are moving so fast, so you're not starting from ground zero, you've already done the groundwork that you have in place when something like that happens, even if you're responding and saying, give us a couple minutes to figure this out and we're going to be right back at you, you're providing some sort of communication with them and letting them know you're taking this seriously, whatever the situation is. If you if you can respond, and, and many times to your point, it's like communication moves at the speed of light, so you got to go. Yeah, yeah. There was a piece in Forbes recently that I thought was very interesting about this very thing, and it was kind of about regaining customer trust during a crisis. And it was aimed at business leaders and and professionals because there's a, a lot of moving pieces in a business. But there was a, a an item in there that I thought was really interesting. It really stood out, and that was the idea that you can't communicate your way out of a crisis and really kind of getting to the idea that your actions speak louder than your words. I think we've seen that again and again from brands and leaders, you know, trotting out there to the podium and saying, we're sorry, but then not necessarily changing what happened or or not maybe making a satisfactory move or things like that. I think especially now when we we 
have been, we've been hit with a lot of social change over the last couple of years, I think. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, people in power being held accountable in different ways for their actions than perhaps previously through the Me Too movement and things like that. You know, the, the what you do is so significant that, you know, we've seen so many leaders just kind of come out and apologize all day. I don't know that we can just get away with just an apology anymore with, with some of the way things are going. Yeah, I would totally agree. And when you think about it, action is a form of communication. And here's the other thing is think about, again, I go back to this planning process. If you don't have the right spokesperson that you're going to tap into that's going to be at the front of a crisis, you better have that discussion ahead of time, and it better be an honest discussion with the leader. Mm. And and that has happened with us over the years. Like, I don't know if this person is ready to, to play lead when something happens, and you need to have an upfront and honest conversation with that leader and, and, and work through that. They're most likely trainable, but you at least have to have that conversation because if you put the wrong person in front of a crisis as the face of a company, that will do und- untold damage to your credibility, your trust, the brand, everything, and ultimately can hit your bottom line. Yeah, I mean, we were earlier today, I was I was talking a bit about the uh, um, the the ongoing, let's say, uh, the ongoing Boeing crisis. And I have felt so many times watching that story continue to evolve, watching shoes continue to drop. I've thought so many times I would not want to be CEO Dennis Muhlenberg right now, nor would I want to be the PR team for, for Boeing. That just seems like such a difficult process. When you have something and the stakes are that high, where do you even begin in crisis communication? Oh, that is a good question, and I am keeping such a close eye on that one. And from my perspective, yeah, it's been a little bit touchy from the get-go. I mean, these are people's lives um, on those planes and the missteps and everything that happened in the past. And here's the other thing. is something like that, you got to keep in mind that there's an internal struggle between a company that size. You have... Um, investors, you have the legal team, you have risk, everyone's chiming in, and you're trying to do a balance between what is perhaps best from the public point of view for the brand, and then there's the legal. you got to protect the organization from the legal side. And somewhere in between there, you're going to have to come to a compromise. And sometimes somebody might have to stick their neck out and do what's right from the public's perception, and that could actually help turn things around all the way across the board. And I understand that's hugely risky. And every everything about crisis communications is a risk. You've had something bad happen, and now you're either going to dig a bigger hole or you're going to climb out of start to climb out of that hole. And at the end of the day, you do the best you can. Um, but there are so many case studies. And, you know, one other one I'm thinking about, I, I believe it was a resort down in Florida, the Disney resort where the child uh, was killed, was it by a alligator a few years ago? Mm, yeah. And I heard the CEO talking about that. And, man, right from the get-go, I think um, what I heard is he reached out to the family. Now, in a lot of cases on the back end, you might have a legal team saying, you don't want to do that, you don't want to do that. And I'm not, I'm not trying to pit 
legal versus communicators. Um, I think we all have the, the client's best interest at heart, but sometimes you just have to stick your neck out a little bit because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's a lesson we could take forth into a lot of areas of our life for sure. We, we need to take Absolutely. a break. We need to take a break right now, but I'm talking with Lisa Cruz. She is the principal at Re- and founder of Red Shoes PR. We'll be right back here in just a bit on 720 WGN. 720 WGN, it's Amy Guth in for Anna Davalantis here until three o'clock. So we've been talking with Lisa Cruz, who is the founder and principal at Red Shoes PR. We've been learning about crisis communication, which I think is such a fascinating topic because how many times have I been on right here behind this very microphone talking about, oh, look at so-and-so brand really just stepped in it today and did this horrible thing. (laughs) Or, you know, this CEO has trotted out and said the worst possible thing. And now everyone on Twitter is even angrier. And I feel like there's always some kind of crisis brewing. But, you know, in this moment, Lisa, we're, we're... we're kind of a lot of businesses are very tied to online reviews. I'm thinking about Yelp. I'm thinking about, you know, things like that. There's seems like everybody's got a rating for something. What happens when it's misinformation? I mean, I think especially for if you have a brick and mortar location and you have a Yelp review that's not good. And it's maybe just someone who was just having a bad day and just really, you know, sometimes, you know, you see them and you're like, well, that person was just on a bad date. Her food was fine. She says so, but she's leaving a bad review because she just had a bad night. Things like that. How do you work out misinformation or bad reviews or, or maybe somebody, a competitor is just kind of talking smack about you? How do you, how do you work that out online with, or, or just in the public conversation without, you know, trying to, without being like mudslinging, without stooping to a low? How do you even begin to address yeah. that? Yeah, that seems to be very common today, and they come in a variety of packages, online reviews and everything else, and people chiming in. Sometimes the best approach is, let's say it's an ongoing conversation on Facebook, Um, sometimes the best approach is to let the crowd um, kind of call out the other person. And that happens more often than you think to the advantage of the business. So that's always really, really good to see. Sometimes we advise clients step in, make a comment that we're sorry you had that sort of experience and we'd love to learn more, hear more from you. Please call us directly. And that is a very powerful way of coming back and saying, we hear you, we're listening to you, and we want to learn from this mistake. Yes. So that's often the sort of response that we will advise clients to use. And sometimes in the heat of the moment, believe it or not, we do tell clients just wait a beat or two. Hmm. Let's see how things play out in the next hour, the next two hours, the next 24 hours, because sometimes things are so heated that you don't even want to throw any gas on the flame is what we say. So each situation is different, um, but many times it's acknowledge the person that they had a bad experience. And then, you know, but sometimes maybe you know the source that it's coming from and you just let it play out a little bit. And then there's also ways like is there – is there a way you can push that content down a little bit or that conversation or but the the best the best approach is just to take a careful look at it and consider all your options before you throw something out there because I know this is the other thing that gets people in trouble or organizations is sometimes you might see an unfavorable comment and you're also quick to react and that's where I go back and I say, take a moment or two, maybe it's a few hours, maybe it's 30 seconds, and just calm down, sit back, take a break, and then go look at it again. 
Yeah, that's sound advice. I also really like your idea of uh, letting kind of throwing people to the court of public opinion. I've seen that play out so many times on social media where somebody, you know, is getting trolled or, you know, someone's going after somebody online and just being nasty when they just kind of sit back and let their people take care of them, it happens. And usually it does wonderfully and really beautiful. I mean, I've done that. I've let people, you know, please, I have in this job I'm in, people are probably texting right now telling me how terrible I am. Right. So I mean, it happens (laughs) every day. Right. So, and sometimes you know, like a, a, a comment and you look below it and there's a bunch of other comments like, you know what? You need to go get a hobby, leave it alone, go away. And just kind of like getting rid of the bully, things like that. I think that's yes, a, absolutely. That's a really important strategy. What about, what about, you know, when things do get big, what I'm thinking of in particular as I'm asking that is this recent story about a reporter who is standing on the sidelines of a race in Savannah. A man runs by and he smacks her on the butt as she's reporting on live television. Later, it was identified this guy is a youth pastor and a Boy Scout leader. And Twitter is is on fire with, you know, all alight with this. And, and there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of people fighting about the story who are not connected to it. There's I mean, I, I sent a tweet to the reporter because I I feel bad for her. That had to be have been be- very embarrassing to happen on live television at all, much less on TV. But, you know, at this point, how do you even manage that? I mean, for either of them, right? Both of them are taking a lot of grief on both sides of it, both him as the as the perpetrator right here caught on television doing this and, and, and violating this woman's space and, and sense of bodily autonomy. And then her were, were like getting all this grief from his his supporters. I mean, if you're in that position, you know, God forbid, but but if a professional finds themselves in that position, where do you begin there? So one of the other things I think that's often overlooked when you work with an outside agency is that when things are moving so fast and there's all these queries come in and your phone is ringing off the hook and emails and texts and everything, part of that is you're just inundated. Like things are coming at you, tweets are coming at you, posts. So one of the things, the benefits of working with an outside agency, or let's say you have an internal PR comm person is have that person run triage is what I would call that because the person involved, like, again, that is so much coming at them. So whether it's the church where he's a youth pastor or this woman, the station that she shouldn't be on the front lines, like vetting all these queries and posts and everything else that comes in, there should be a team in place to kind of like what I call is serve as the conductor. So triage all these things and figure out what's priority, what's most important, what needs to be tackled right away. That is an unfortunate situation that I'm going to have to read up on more. Oh, the the videos out there, it's really a cringeworthy oh. moment for sure. Yeah, poor, poor woman. I felt very bad for her. Uh, you know, just standing there on the sidelines of a race. Yay, look at the runners, people waving and this guy not waving, certainly not. Uh, so, so yeah, that was the thing. I'll let you read about it and draw your own conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. And then yeah. organizationally, it sounds like some things need to um, take place in terms of addressing the situation. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I mean, I think all this stuff is so interesting because, you know, we, we've seen it play out where a person sends a tweet they they just kind of meant as a joke and then it becomes a thing and i mean it, social media has 
has capsized and missteps in other ways have capsized careers. It doesn't take much to do that. And I think the viral nature of the world that we live in, it takes even less. It, it can happen even faster. So it's very interesting to kind of take a minute and think through all this stuff. Uh, you know, in, in there's so much news coming at us. There's so much, you know, conversation happening all around us online, offline, all of that. It's, it's interesting. I think, especially for business owners to just kind of take a minute, think it through. Where could I fall into, into big problems and, and kind of think through where, uh, you know, where you can mitigate some of that ahead of time before it, before it even hits you. Um, so where can people go to find more about Red Shoes PR and reach you? Cause I'm sure a lot of people are like, Oh, I have questions for her. I have so many things. <laughs> And I love talking about crisis, so they can certainly visit us at redshoesinc.com. So contact information and everything is right on there. I believe even my cell phone number's on there. We have a hotline um, because, of course, crisis do not happen between the business hours of 8 and 5. So we are always reachable, and it's not uncommon for me to be doing a road trip and getting a call from somebody saying I'm in the midst of a crisis. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to put that hotline in my phone, Lisa. I'm not going to lie. I'm just going to put that in my phone and be like, I got a person. This thing is happening. Things are blowing up. I got to call my hotline, my PR hotline, and get this worked out. I think, I think I'm going to put yeah, that in my phone. That's exactly it. But, you know, to your point earlier, just words and actions matter. And I guess that's, that's what I love about what we do in terms of helping businesses. It's that strategic communications. It's the thoughtful communications and taking the time to think through things with Without just whipping things off, which I think is all too common today. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I feel like not a day goes by that we're not looking at some brand who's made a misstep or some business leader or, you know, something like that. So I really appreciate your time today, Lisa. Such a joy to talk with you. We will have you back another time for sure. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a great afternoon. Thanks. You too. All right. And so for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sure and tweet out links to all the stuff we talked about on the show today. But right now, let's take a quick break. Back in just a bit on 720 WGN. 720 WGN, thanks so much for being with us today. Amy Guth in for Anna Davlantis. Tomorrow, you've got Jane Monzuras. She's in for Anna. You, I'm sure she's got a wonderful show in store because she always has a great show and great guests. And then Anna will be back on Monday. So thank you very much to esteemed producer Jasmine Cooper. Always well, a pleasure. You. I love working with you, Jasmine. You're so you. fun and so nice. You're amazing. Oh, so. come. No, seriously. Come on now. So are you. Takes Aww. one to know one, Jasmine Cooper. I guess. <laughs> I guess. All right. Well, like I said, everything we talked about today, I'm going to tweet out later this afternoon. So if you follow me on Twitter, it's Amy Guth, G-U-T-H, not Goose. I know sometimes I get mail here to Amy Goose like the bird. No, Amy Guth, like Ruth, but with a G. Uh, I'm going to tweet out all that stuff because I'm at Amy Guth on Twitter. Find me there. Send it all out. It'll be all good.